Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man whose hobby as a child was swimming in swamps. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I only swam in swamps because I like alliteration, and the only thing better than an S alliteration is an SW alliteration. Swamp swimming is just fun to say. It, you're, you're not wrong. Swamp swimming. I feel like it should be a B-52 song now. I agree. It's it, it makes sense that way. I'm sure you could... Probably somebody could cook one up pretty quickly. B-52 parodies are not... <laughs> They're not know, hard to do. Not that hard to make, really. Or go on swimming in the swamp. <laughs> like, you did it. You did it. You're done. <laughs> Before we get to this week's movie, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. If you want to support us, keep us going. We'll probably still do this even if we didn't have anybody I on I mean, Patreon, we did it for a long are, time before Patreon yeah, existed. Right. So, yeah. We're, we're pretty thankful to those supporters. Uh, One dollar a month yeah, uh, sure. not only helps us out, but gets you access to non-Criterion collection films over there. We talk about uh, just we put up a list is what we do. People vote on what movie we're going to watch, and we talk about it. Um, it's not always non-criterion because at least once uh, the vote that won was well, uh, failsafe, which ended up in the criterion which is now collection. Under, but it's and, always, and of course, as we've discussed, yeah. eventually they'll all, all be on there. I can't the really collection. wait until yeah. uh, what's that? What's the kid monster movie called? I can't remember its name. Uh, all I remember <laughs> is the premise. <laughs> You're talking about Monster Squad, a movie we yeah. Also so presumably, about eventually, like Spine Seven Thousand Forty Five will, will be, be Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Yeah. With a whole bunch of extra materials attached, it'll be interviews with a bunch of like used to be child actors. It'll be great. it'll be it'll be a a spine collection of uh, by the decades every attempt to make a universal monster verse. Uh, oh yeah, I know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that actually sounds like a pretty interesting box collection. None of the individual movies will be interesting. Oh, absolutely not. But on but a conceptual level, the box really, set will be yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, particularly if it has artwork. Of the Wolfman between every film. Oh yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I would also like to point out the other advantage of the one dollar uh level is just kind of giving a big f you to Patreon every time you <laughs> submit money at that <laughs> that's level. Really, that's really fair. Patreon, Patreon for the last uh, like two months has been really on me to eliminate the one dollar level. <laughs> Which I'm tempted to change all the levels to one dollar, even though there's no advantage to that, other yeah. than just to be like, "Oh, you want me to get rid of one dollar, huh?" <laughs> right. Watch this. Yeah, yeah. Patreon is a a service we use uh, because it exists, but we would gladly use. I almost I would gladly else. burn it to the ground in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the one dollar mark for a little above that five dollars uh we like to thank those people on air and we're very grateful to the five dollar supporters christopher yes, Otto, and adam spickerman for your continued supports at that level a little above that we do something that i think is pretty dang special pat makes a piece of art based on the movie we've watched recently and i get that printed up on postcards 
and write a little thank you note and mail that off to our $10 and above supporters. So thank you so much to Jason Westhaver and Michael McGrath for your continued supports at that level. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Pat, I've really liked a lot of your postcards. I've only hated one, I think. Um, is the one you hated the Godzilla one? Because the I Godzilla the one Godzilla is definitely one. the one I hated. Pat. The Godzilla one, though, I want you to th- I I know everybody hates the Godzilla one, but I want to I want you to think about the way that makes you feel when you look at it. Yes, you feel haunted inside. I right? don't want to think about the way it makes me feel when I look at <laughs> but it. But like that was the point. Is like that image was in my head, haunting me, and I ringed you all. Yes, and now I'm free, and you're all cursed. Thanks. You're welcome. I but I want you to understand that like in my mind to a certain extent art's purpose is to make people feel things. Yeah. Not necessarily good things, but just make them feel things. And that postcard sure as shit makes you feel things. <laughs> it's it's that disgust, is, revulsion, that is true. a desire to just drop it immediately. Yes. <laughs> it's that in is your all hand. true. Pat uh, uh you're let welcome, me, is what I'm saying. Let me never accuse you of making art that d- is not meaningful. Uh, I would never. I refuse. Patreon.com yes. <laughs> slash Lost in Criterion if you want to want to help us out, keep us going. Uh, again, any level is appreciated, but really, just listening is appreciated, too. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. <sighs> this week, we are getting back. It has been a long time since like, we saw... Maybe a decade? ...in Andre Tchaikovsky It Tchaikovsky's feels like a decade. <laughs> We haven't been doing this for a I decade I know, but yet. it feels like a decade, right? I'm not wrong about what it but feels it does. like, right? It does. Uh, when was the last time we saw it? Do I don't it... know. Was it Rublev? Was that what it was? No, was Rublev the was the one? very first one we saw. Okay. I don't remember anymore. Uh, we haven't seen Stalker yet because that one, that's not until number 888. Stalker's that late in the collection? Stalker is that late in the collection. I didn't realize that. Um, so this is Spine... We're sitting around, uh, we're just under 400, and Solaris would be the last one we saw. Oh, I forgot Solaris was a Tarkovsky yeah. movie, completely. And, yeah, and Solaris was spine number 164. I actually so process has... Solaris, as a, weirdly enough, as a, uh, as a um, I don't know, I don't know who I think of Solaris as being connected to, but it's not Tarkovsky, I don't know why. Yeah, there is also the, uh, the... The Killers uh, DVD contained the short directed by Tarkovsky. That was an adaptation of of The Killers as well. Um, oh, right. And that was Spine 176. So that was the last Tarkovsky work that we counts, watched. Although I don't really think we, we thought about that that deeply. <laughs> we, we talked about it a little Did bit. Did we? But it was, it very well. We talked about all three adaptations because all three adaptations were on one Spine number for some right. reason. Uh despite being a two-disc set that actually contained three movies. It was only one spine number, and <laughs> I will never Criterion understand. Collection has, as far as I can tell, no singular focus idea or, or unifying concept that makes anything work. Right. Ah, yes, we'll divide these shorts into individual spine numbers, but these three movies, one spine number. <laughs> right, right. Uh, anyway, uh, from Rublev through Solaris, uh, and I have seen... I have seen Stalker multiple times. Uh, I am a huge fan of Tarkovsky. I think he's. I like Tarkovsky. I do too. I, I, my issue is that Rublev is like a hard one to come in on. Yeah. Like I, I still, 
I remember Rublev, but all I remember are disjointed images floating through my brain. Right, right. Rublev was long and full of disjointed images, really. Yeah. Um, less so than, than Solaris, which ideal. But weirdly enough, plot wise, I, Solaris had. I, had. Like, Sir, Solaris was more comprehensible than me. And I understood it better than I understood yeah. Rublev. Like, just fundamentally. I think that's fair. Uh, Ivan's childhood is his first feature length. Um, and Rublev was his second a few years later. Right. So uh, Ivan's childhood lays some groundwork for a lot of things he would continue to do throughout his career. Uh, Rublev is really just throwing everything at the wall. <laughs> as far yeah. As I, to, a, to an extent. Um, and then, you know, eventually we'll watch Stalker, which is the uh, the distillation of all those ideas into something that uh, everyone I've tried to get to watch it thinks is incredibly boring. So, um, I've, Every description of Stalker I've ever heard has been a description of just how boring it is. I don't know. It looks really interesting to me. I've yeah. never watched it, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is It is Tarkovsky at his most, I suppose, poetic is a very uh, polite way of putting it, but that's that's why it's boring. It's it's mostly right. just three guys walking into the wilderness um, and right. some weird stuff. But happening. like, but I I don't know. That doesn't sound that bad to me. I don't know. I've just I've never seen it. I I always tell myself yeah. I will, and then I, a, and then I don't. Eventually, you will. Because yeah, I know, uh, but I don't in, like. I'm not banking on me making it eight more years. Okay? We will. Yeah, we it's will a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh. But yeah, this week it's Ivan's childhood uh, from 1962, also uh, released in the U.S. as My Name Is Ivan for a little bit, um, at least once. Uh, but the Criterion. In, keeps Ivan's childhood. That's another inconsistency with Criterion. When it when it uses what the original name it chooses, yeah. The original or, or at least an anglicized writing version of the original title was in English. I, I actually think there is a weirdly racist consistency to that. Oh. Uh if it is a if it is a Western language, the chances that they will use a just a transliteration of it is yeah. much higher. Than if it comes from any country outside of the eastern or the western, like sort of European fair. sphere, it certainly like, happens significantly less often with Japanese films. Though I can think of Japanese it, films, yeah, there are a few, and they have to, but they're usually incredibly simple. Like right. it's almost exclusively to limited right. to like single word, very simple pronunciations. I don't think we've ever seen it with a Russian film or a Polish film or anything that is a Slavic language. Uh, there was I, there was one. Uh, one Polish film, um, Canal. Oh, okay. Yeah, but okay. That's, but, but that like, barely counts, right? <laughs> like, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's basically just, it's just any, you know, I mean, yeah, it seems to be based on, like, how hard they think it'll be to pronounce unless it's French. In which case they're like, ah, fuck it, we don't care. Everybody right. speaks French, right? Right. And then, and then they just do it in French. Um seems to be the they don't do like i don't think any of the ones we watched that were in swedish or any uh sort of nordic languages are are ever not translated right right and that's I'm trying to think if there's any there's no bergman films that are not translated yeah, yeah. um i can't think of i don't know that there's an untranslated spanish film that we've encountered yet 
I bet uh, there is though. I I would yeah. bet that it's it seems fairly likely that yeah. that exists because that's one of those languages like oh everybody can pronounce this. Right. Right. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, the original Russian here is not going to get us anywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and and that's why they're not. I and and they're very their audience focused, right? right. Which is. A group Which of people is, who probably yeah. don't speak Russian super well. Americans, yeah. Yeah. Which is fine, you know. We get bogged down in talking about that, and there's certainly certainly a conversation to be had about that, you know, in a criterion meta sense. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, but it's not right. probably not neither here nor there as far as, like, right. this movie. <laughs> right. But they don't even use, like, a Romanized version of a Russian film title in any anything we've experienced so far. No, and I don't think um, we ever will encounter that. I suppose I guess. suppose something like uh Andre Rublev or or Alexander well, names don't, names technically don't technically right. qualifies. I, I think we but, have to set a precedent yeah. that in this discussion going forward, <laughs> yeah. people's names don't count because that's just not how the world works, right? Like right. yeah, we've encountered plenty of movies named after plenty of people that are not like what are you gonna do? Like translate the person's name? Yeah, like buckle up for fucking Japanese and Chinese uh, movie titles. Then it's gonna be an interesting ride. Oh, so you, you're ah the movie Cave Mouth Summer Child. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, Yee 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 Yee. Technically, I think. Uh, it might be. Yeah, I, I have to check. But I thought that was like yeah. somebody's nickname in that movie. I'm not no, sure. I can't remember. No, it, it means it uh, the. The English translation is one and a two. It's like a, it's oh, a, a musical right. yeah, count Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Good catch. Of course, yeah. again, it has to be the simplest thing on earth. Right, right. right. It has to be right. single syllables, essentially. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, this movie, um, Ivan's Childhood, is uh, it's part of an era of Soviet film where we've seen other movies from that era. The Cranes Are Flying, Ballad of a Soldier, um, it is a late 50s, early 60s time in uh, the Soviet Union where Stalin has died and Khrushchev is in power and sort of de-Stalinizing a lot of things about Soviet, the Soviet Union. Um, a lot of the excesses of Stalin's regime that we won't get into, uh, but... Uh, I will call it a regime, and that has all the connotations yeah. it needs. Uh, but uh, this is a, a relaxed period artistically, not to say a free-for-all period artistically, but a relaxed period. Um, and war films of this period moved into from, from celebrations of uh, Soviet conquest over the Nazis to real intimate looks at the human cost of World War II. Right. Uh, this is also, the directors are people who were alive during the war, coming of age, and getting work. Um, uh, I believe Tarkovsky here is just under 30 years old at the start of this, which means he was a young teenager during the war. He was about the main character's age during the war. Uh I don't think this is autobiographical by any means. No, old, but uh, I, I mean, when a director does that, you yeah. have to assume to at least a certain extent, while maybe not autobiographical, it probably has some grains of He does. He does feeling. talk about 
some of the imagery in the dreams being being drawn from right. his own. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, experiences. Uh, uh, in a 1962 inter- interview, Tarhasi stated that the making of this film uh, was to convey his hatred of war. Uh, and he chose to focus on a child because it's what contrasts most with war. And that's an interesting thing that I think we need to talk about because you and I have talked a lot about the reality, like the, the thought process that it's impossible to make an anti-war film. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I think there's a lot of meat to dig into here as far as that's concerned. Yeah. Well, the, have well, at I it. Mean, well, I mean, I was I wanted to talk about a few of the sort of nuts and bolts I thought we would okay. do first, I but mean, we, we can, can talk about that. that first. That'll just be the rest of the, the episode. <laughs> that that probably will be the rest of the episode. So, so, so I figured I'd a little let you finish up what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, um, this is an this is a movie that is highly influential, but a movie that also wears its influences on its sleeve in many ways. Uh, for instance, um. Tarkovsky here is basically aping the style uh, wholeheartedly of the uh, cinematographer of The Cranes Are Flying. Um, yeah. He, uh, he, wanted the, he wanted the film to look as if Sergei Urusevsky shot it. Um, and The Cranes Are Flying was a beautifully shot film. I don't know if you remember a lot of that. Oh, I remember the, it. The crane the thing shot I, thing I the didn't, parade. I didn't realize is um, I started thinking about this, though. What I realize is that and that not as much, but this oddly enough really reminds me of Wajo's work. Yeah, yeah. Like the framing, the way like the way scenery is used to frame. Yeah, characters' presence in the shot feels very reminds me intensely of Waja. Yeah, like where there'll be a thing in the foreground that frames the character, a thing you don't see in a lot. I we don't see in a lot of other cinematography styles. Right. I'm trying to think back uh, to like other things we've seen, like from France and other places like that. And very rarely do I see, like, for example, just random shit in the far- foreground, right. providing framing right. context particularly, for the characters. Particularly Ashes and Diamonds use of. Oh yeah, uh, so much. Yes. Yeah, uh, and its use of uh, of religious <laughs> symbols yeah. in yeah. in ruins. Right. That's yeah, something absolutely. we get here explicitly. And Ashes yes, and Diamonds absolutely. came out in 1958. It is also right. something that that is Tarkovsky is using as influence here. Yeah, I have to think he is right because it's just it's so that element is so similar. And then yeah, yeah the the actual style being very uh, right the way the way things are lit in this movie feels a yeah. lot like Waja too. Uh, light breaking through claustrophobic rooms. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> The Wikipedia page for this, uh, in the uh, in the responses section, uh, talks about a uh, an article in La Unita, an Italian newspaper, by Alberto Morovia, uh, in which uh, Morovia was highly critical of the film, and Jean Paul Sartre ended up writing a letter to the magazine to uh, to push back against Moravia's comments. Sarte, in that, calls it one of the most beautiful films he'd ever seen. However, uh, there is no context in the Wikipedia 
of what those complaints are. Uh, in the Criterion essay on uh, on the, with the DVD, they get into a little bit more about that. La Unita, uh, the United, uh, is uh, is a Italian communist press, uh, and essentially Morovia accused. Tarkovsky of overplaying the lyrical and poetic elements of this film uh, and substituting detached bourgeois asceticism uh, for class consciousness. That was the critique they were aiming at this. I can, I, can see, I, I can see where that would come from, though, right? Yeah. Like, especially uh, if, you're, if your primary thought process was sort of up until then, sort of like maybe that Soviet realism kind of thing. Yeah. Where you're like you're not conveying. You're you're trying to show, in a way, the way the war affects normal people, but you're not really showing that because yeah. it's too. Yeah, it's kind of almost too imaginative. Right. What I can see that argument. What the Wikipedia then does say, is still without contextualizing what the actual complaints were. Uh, the Wikipedia article does cite a later interview from Tarkovsky in which he says he agreed with Morovia's criticism at the time and found Sartre's defense quote too philosophical and speculative uh, and I think I think given the rest of Tarkovsky's work I think I can I can see why he would agree with Morovia's criticism right like especially that's what, when you if consider... that's the bulk of Morovia's criticism is right that disconnect from communism really <laughs> right yeah like i mean because if your goal is to show the the sort of horrors of like not the horrors of war i guess but like you know that war is terrible the human cost of war yes yeah you can't you can't to a certain extent gussying it up and making like it very philosophical does detach you from that reality right like it, it just does right because you're now you're thinking in a sort of meta context instead of the actual day-to-day struggle of the people you're trying to talk about right uh that's what you get into something really interesting with uh with when you get into something like soviet realism and things like that where like it, it's a weird thing right because it comes from a a, a legitimate place of thought but gets derived during sort of the height of that era into a thing that is has nothing to do with that original thought, but in like a different direction, right? Where it's like, oh, you can't sort of, have it, it has to become hyper literal, right? Right, yeah. You're, you're making the world hyper literal rather than taking into consideration the fact that like your goal is to convey the real experiences of people, right? Uh, which is actually what you're trying to do, right? Right. It's this is it's just a weird thing because like you're like oh we've got this philosophy let's take it in a ridiculous right. direction and human that has nothing to do with what it's about right human human humanity is poetic right humanity is right. philosophical right. Uh, right and and of course that is not to say that there is that uh, uh, Soviet realism is somehow unphilosophical it is a philosophy it is explicitly that right it's a, I'm I'm talking more about the sort of lo- yeah. you know. When you talk about something like Stalinism or something, the sort yeah. of like taking certain things about it and just amping them to eleven for kind of no reason, <laughs> other than like that's your preference. National identity, yeah. International yeah, exactly. identity. 
considering they're covering a union of Soviet republics. It's uh, right, right. You know, it's the well, thing, and, and to the a certain extent, be- Soviet ahead. realism did what principally is emphasize the worker, right, and the internationalness of the worker. Is, right, is and and the, and there's a value to that. Goals. My my yeah. issue, and I think a lot of people's issue with regards to how it is expressed in art, became the fact that like it also the way it determined sort of things like visual styles got into authoritarianism, right? right. Where it's like, right. Oh, it has to look real. <laughs> like it can't not look focusing right. on the image rather than the meaning. Right. Right. Uh, is always problematic. Right. And it, and it reeks of those kind of regimes that like want to force certain behavior, not because for their own ends rather than the ends of like right. making the art, better yeah now now waja working just before this i think is a master of synthesizing both the the realism and the poetical and the uh and the class consciousness all all together yeah for sure and well and we saw a progression with waja too right right? like right like late stage waja that we saw was much better at it than early stage waja yeah and that's visible here too i guess with when you talk about Tarkovsky in the fact that he has to go through a progression as well. Right. We're like, this one is beautiful, but it is still sort of a mishmash of other people's right. this is out the expressions. Gate. This is out the gate and is using a lot of influence. And, right. You know, even what we've already talked about, and, and, you know, you can see some wells in here. You can see a lot of stuff uh, from all over, which is not an issue. It's not a problem. And, no. you know. It, but it is, but, it, but he... It is him, but it's still him. Right. It is him filtered through other people. He has right. not found his own voice yet, I think. Is right. Is I would what, agree. Uh, what you're getting And that at. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing is, right, if you look at the context, right, like I watched that, uh, the interview that came with this, the 30-minute interview. Yes. With this sort of historic, I, I forget what that person's job was, but yeah. uh, definitely an expert on this topic. Right. Um, was talking about the fact that, like, they, they they had just essentially just been introduced to a lot of foreign influences. Yeah. Because with the thaw came the ability to see films from, like, a much greater access to films from overseas. Uh, suddenly, you can see how that would play an effect, have an effect on a director, too, right? Like, if you just got essentially blasted by a lot of work that maybe wasn't available to you even oh, five, yeah. ten years ago. Oh, absolutely. You're good. You're going to start making this weird sort of work where you're like, I just need to, it's going to open a lot of doors that didn't exist before. Especially right? a guy who is in film school while that's happening. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. He is completely consuming everything. And, and I think this movie exists before he's really had a chance to synthesize all of that into yeah, totally. his own voice. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And then we see that that does happen later. We totally see that that happens as time goes on. And, and again, an excellent job of doing that. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. despite that, this is still gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, extremely well done. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, you can, you can feel the influences very, they're much closer to the surface than they will be later on. I think that's, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this film was in production before Tarkovsky came on board. It's based on a short story uh, that was 
published a few years earlier, um, 1957 is when the short story was published, there had been at least one attempt to get this adapted beforehand. Uh, and it fell apart and then sort of fell into Tarkovsky's lap uh, as his first project. Moss Film offered it to him, uh, I think, through a, through a friend. Uh, yeah, it's, it was something yeah. like that, yeah. Uh, and then he reworked the novel with Vladimir Bogomolov, uh, who helped make this film, uh, who would become... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the name of the author. I, I misread yeah. my own notes. His friend of, is Andrei, uh... Andrei Mikhailov uh, Konchalovsky, uh, who became an important Russian director in his own right. However, we will not see anything from him in the Criterion Collection. <laughs> Well, maybe there's an opportunity for a yeah. uh, for a uh, bonus episode if you can yeah. a- if we can access yeah, we... any of those films. <laughs> yeah, uh, his most, is not a guarantee. His most well-known film is uh, 1979 Siberiad, as far as I can tell. That's the one. All right. The, well, uh, I'm on board. The name Siberiad is pretty awesome. Yeah. Or Siberiad, Siberiad, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, either way. But yes. Um, uh, this is... I, w- I like to point out that it sounds pretty much from the interviews and stuff like the actual author of the book was not a fan, which is always <laughs> the thing I enjoy. Anytime a director yes. makes a movie and the book author is like, what the fuck happened here? That's pretty That's common. almost always a good thing. That is pretty common for uh, for Tarkovsky yeah. adaptations that we've seen so far, too, in that yeah. uh, the two, it, it exists. Yes. Because uh, the guy who wrote Solaris hated Solaris. Yes, yeah. But, like, also even beyond Tarkovsky, this is a running theme in a lot of criteria. It's right, like, oh, right. movies that are famous for being awesome, oftentimes yeah. totally nothing to do with the book they're written about. We, uh, we, will, discuss, about. we will discuss a film la- next week that is so much of a straight adaptation because of author involvement. And we will uh, right, yeah. we'll get into to some manner of that discussion, too. Uh, but this one, disconnected. Uh, another reason this movie exists... Uh, is because Soviet directors found it really easy to break into the mainstream by wa- making a war movie, especially at this time. Right. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. Um, it uh, this is, as I said, a time where war movies were sort of changing what they were. Uh, but the uh, the official discourse of the Soviet identity at the time is still very much tied into World War II and being anti-Nazi. Um. So it was easier to get a movie made and easier to get a movie distributed if it was a war movie that played to those themes. Uh, And because it was easier to get distributed and had sort of official backing, that also meant it was much easier to get a movie like this put out for international audiences and put out onto the festivals uh, like Cranes Are Flying or Ballad of a Soldier as well. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, the interesting thing about that, right, is that, like, Tarkovsky doesn't doesn't in any way challenge that the the fundamental Soviet narrative, right? About Nazis are bad and evil, right? Right. Like very much the Nazis let's, are the boogeymen of this movie. I mean, like, let's also let's also not say that uh, the Soviet fundamental Soviet narrative as if that is not a fundamental no, no, narrative of a... no. I no. I, yes. Okay. Like it is obviously possible to take that out of context yes. in a weird way. My point is, is that like I don't want to provide there, sound we, bites we for have when you're watched, on We'll watch other. We what we have watched and we'll watch other movies that do try to address the humanity of 
people who were Nazi soldiers. Right. Like, right. because they were people. Yes. Uh, people, you know, and, and there we will watch movies that try to deal with that. We have and we will again. I'm do sure we, of it. Because do we directly see any Nazis in this movie? Period. I don't think so. I think the only Nazi, no. Because no, no. Even, we do. do. We see Goebbels' burned body in the documentary. Oh footage right, of yeah. Dead well, Nazis. that doesn't count. The dead body. Yes, we see a lot of dead Nazis. Yes. Um, which is which? You know, oddly enough, I would say that that's probably Goebbels' family and the family of the other yeah. is probably the closest that this movie gets to dealing with that narrative on a deeper level. Which I is, think he spends more time than you would think in a movie like this on the fact that those are dead kids sitting there. Right. I think getting back to something that uh, Mysteries of the Organism and Sweet Movie were sort of hinting at of uh, fascism as an overblown uh, sexual identity. Right, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that what those very explicitly do is show the patriarchal structure of fascism that these Nazi officials couldn't just get rid of themselves they had to kill their family too now the implication now now why the nazis did that was because they thought oh well my family's going to be tortured if they're captured or whatever it wasn't it wasn't but it was still about a patriarchal control of of the narrative moving forward too right so right And, and and the reality of the matter is is that i whenever you see that sort of thing i think that's the you get into this weird thing where it's like yeah that's your the patriarchal narrative, and that's the that's sort of the the justification or excuse that you've come up with. Oh well, my family will be tortured or whatever. Right, right, right. Like you don't you don't know that. <laughs> you don't. That's not a thing you know. Uh, and I I can't think. I honestly can't say that's a thing you could guarantee. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like you can create that universe in your head as a you know higher up in the Nazi structure that your wife and children will be tortured, but. It's not. It's really hard to know that. You know what I mean? Like, to what will happen with any, and, and that that control is important inside of that something like not like Nazi philosophy, right? right? That they have to be in control of that. Like, the only way to ensure that it won't happen is just is to kill them. I think within any ideological structure, uh, particularly within any oppressive ideological structure, any ideology of oppression particularly of oppression of particular social or people groups. Uh, there is a fear that if my group is defeated, my group in power is defeated, our enemies will do to us what we have done to them. What we did to them, yeah. Uh, and I can understand from that point a human, from a humanity point of... Uh, Various Nazis officials wanting to save their families from the possibility of going people. through this thing that suddenly they realize is a bad thing. Yeah, that's what's uh, always fascinating yeah. about that, right? Is that like, well, they did, and that's the reality of the matter. Is right? right. They like, always they didn't knew it was suddenly bad realize anything. Right. They always knew it was bad, yeah. and they always thought the people they were doing to it, it to were not people. Right. Right. And that's and that's what made it yeah. possible. Right? Was oh, these are not people. Whatever these are are not people, right? And like, ah, but we are people, so I have to save my family from that. Uh, it, it's, 
Yes, but I and again though I want to I want to th- I know that that's where we're kind of going with the thought process on this, but I still to a certain extent I think that this is possibly as close as like Targosi's trying to talk about the cost of war. Yeah. And we know that. Right. And showing the children of the of these the children and families of these Nazi officials allows him in a very kind of like kind of brutal but also gentle for him not uh himself getting in trouble a way to convey that that cost exists on both sides right that the the human cost of war to the soviets that the nazis put onto us they also put onto their own people exactly yeah their children paid as well like and 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 i think somebody like turkowski that's an important point right not one that he can make perfectly explicit not in the time and place he's yeah, from I don't, and doing uh, his politically work. at the time. Yeah, right. no, that would be a bad move. But like you can do that without like making it a part of the story by doing something like what he did. Right. Which is just reminding the audience that look, like Ivan dies and that's what this mainly is about. But right. like Nazi if you know, Nazi children died yes. too, which is not like which helps, which is meant to help an audience understand that, like, this cost is for every right. single right. person. They actively murdered involved. their own actual, literal children, not not a conceptual children of Germany. Right. Goebbels their literally own killed actual his kids. Children, yeah. And it's terrible. It's it's yeah. it is the it is weirdly enough the most upsetting part of this film. Oh, absolutely. For me, at least. Listen, like, documentary footage of actual dead bodies is always the most upsetting thing really we can bad, encounter yes. in one of these Criterion films, uh, as far like, as I'm concerned. Targowski did a very good job yeah. of integrating it into this film to make it hurt more than it would if it were just shown to us sort of apropos of nothing. Yeah. Uh, because then you get to connect it to almost immediately finding out that Ivan's dead, right. which you knew was right. going to happen. Like... Obviously. There's no way you watch yeah. this movie and think Ivan's going to turn out great. Right, right. Uh, like, you you as an audience are prepared for that, but to make that more painful, I think to right. a certain extent, Targasi also sets you up by showing you a lot of things that are painful to look at. Right. To make sure that it hits you home that Ivan is also just a child. I also love the the poetic nature of how Ivan's death is recounted. Yeah. Of it being yeah. it being voiceover radio play of his execution as we pan through the halls where this execution took place, right. but in their current ruined state. This execution itself is part of the ruinness of Europe. Because this is ruined this is ruined Berlin we're in when this happens, right? Yeah. And those ruins are again, the human cost of war was inflicted on the German people as much as it was inflicted on the Soviets in this movie. Right. And, and to a certain extent, that sort of that, that weird, the very difficult thing that you have to get across in your mind, which is the idea that like the German people are also the victims of the Nazi regime, while right. also being the perpetrators of it, are also the victims of it as right. well. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to think about. And Tarkov, it's exactly the kind of shit that Tarkovsky wants you to think about. <laughs> right. Right. I really think that's true. Yeah. Uh, yes. This this is such this is such a beautifully shot film, and I, <laughs> the first note I wrote here is holy crap, <laughs> because it's that pan up the tree 
as Ivan walks yeah. in the background. It's just such a phenomenally open, phenomenal opening shot. Uh, it really, yeah, this yeah, movie. and the depth of field in all these shots, you know, definitely, definitely influenced well, I, by cranes are flying. Uh, there's got to be something about. I bet if we went back and looked. I think I remember talking about it vaguely with Cranes Are Flying. There's something weird about Russian film stock at this time, right? Because it looks very different right? than maybe any movie I've ever seen <laughs> outside of it. Like, outside of that genre. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that, that's that one section of the world at one specific time that makes movies that look like this. And then nobody else. <laughs> like... Huh. Bergman's influence, and you can is influenced by yeah Tarkovsky, and you can see it in some things like uh, contrast and things like that. But the film doesn't look the same, right? Like you mean the the quality of the actual yeah like, something about film it stock. like yeah like there there's a sort of intensity yeah. to the definition now of every line in this film stock that is wild as shit. Right. Obviously, what you and I are watching are restorations of this stuff too. Uh, right, I know, but, but we're watching restorations of Bergman films and everything else like that. Right, all, right. all which were addressed the, the same level here. of care. Right, there's the, something intense about the the sort of contrast and definition of, I guess, Soviet film stock. Yeah, maybe like black and white film stock. There's, it's got to be though, because if you look at like Cranes Are Flying, it has the same thing, like, like. I'm looking at an image of Cranes Are Flying literally right now. Oh, yeah. Where I can't barely remember the movie, I'm sorry to say. Like, it's just been too long. But, like, the the lead character, the lead woman is, like, looking through the, like, the wall, like, the bars at her. Uh, yeah. You know, and she's sort of trying to, like. I don't know if it's film stock or if it's lighting and cinematography. It's something, man. It's something. But, but these uh, are films. These are all. You know, Cranes Are Flying and this are monochrome films. Uh, they're not just like black and white films. They're monochrome films. They are films. Yeah. They are films where the black and the white and and Waj is in here too. Uh, yeah, Waj is exactly the same style. Where where the contrast is just so great that it transcends. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's fucking wild, man. Yeah. Like. I'm I'm just looking at screens of the uh, shots of the cranes are flying and like, especially in daylight scenes, like outdoor daylight scenes. Yeah, the distance between the black and the white is just so intense. It's it's the contrast is is amped to like eleven, and then like it makes everything feel. It makes the film feel like the definition is extremely like there's like it's almost like. Like the film has some extra level of definition built yeah. in. It's wild. I don't. I didn't realize when we were watching the cranes are flying that this is a thing because that was early enough <laughs> right, on. Right. But like this is a thing, man. Like Waja films have it. This has it. I bet. I bet every black and white Soviet film we watch <laughs> will look yeah kind of like at I mean, least the, the Eisenstein stuff we've seen so far is a little muddier. I, but yeah. that's coming from the thirties, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's a totally that's yeah. that's that's night and day in terms of like what film technology is available, right? right. Uh, what do you think are the chances that this is? Uh, no, this is 1960. It's too late for that. I was going to say maybe this is film stock they uh, they stole from the Nazis uh, and just threw into Moss film with nothing else to do. Uh, with we, it. we yeah, <laughs> this is probably too late, but because we know that was a thing, right? Yeah. Like 
a bunch of color film made in like <laughs> late 40s early 50s yeah uh, yeah soviet russia was just stolen nazi film stock yeah 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 um <laughs> but this is this is probably homegrown stuff yeah. for sure right yeah i don't know i don't know it's right <laughs> it is so beautiful <laughs> and so, it really is. I, yeah. I, and well, and the thing about it is, the, the, I want to be clear here: the film stock's not doing the work. It's just a unique function oh, yeah. of the. But like knowing how to use that to get this, I guarantee you, you could use that wrong, right? Right. <laughs> like, you could do a bad with that level of contrast. You could do a very bad job. Right. 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 So I, I assume like, there's also a, there's a certain weird sort of. And this is true with other directors that we've encountered before. Like knowing about how your film stock works is important, right? And how to use it because it has a weird. And like you, we read about directors who will only use certain kinds of film stock because that's what they. It's what gives the effect they want, or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Technically, I I know nothing about about that and and even if even if i could find information on this film's technical aspects in that regard i wouldn't know how that compares to anything else right so no i yeah but i mean obviously it, this, is, this feels like it's plain as day though like when right. you look at it you're like yep right. this is this is like late 50s early 60s soviet film right right <laughs> absolutely and you know again the the depth of field it feels like Ozu in a lot of ways, where you know the the action on the frame is so deep. I think of Ozu shooting in houses the way. Yeah, I would agree know. with that. That's 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 uh, true. That's an interesting thing as well because yeah. like you don't you don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of blur. Yeah, uh, like you like you see everything pretty clearly. Right. Two things, two things that sort shocking. of come to mind for me there are like uh, when the. Uh, <sighs> can't remember his name but when his when ivan's big brother character but his boss uh first shows up in the beginning and they're all sharing a drink and it's the three characters in this room sort of stacked behind each other with ivan in the foreground um or when ivan's uh play acting the trap he's going to set for the nazis who killed his mom and he's he's raising the bell and the bell is in the foreground and he's pulling the the rope in the background both yeah all right well i mean yeah you what you see with it is that like and and this is probably what makes it so interesting for us is that it is to a certain extent contrarian against what we expect in western film style (laughs) in that like like you expect with western film style for for you know when you're focusing on a thing in the background the foreground's gonna blur out right film doesn't have to be that way that's a that's a you know it's a it's a choice choice yeah and and we see in these kind of films them just but, not deciding to do that. I think it's ideological to this movie, too, because one reason things uh, blur out in, in Western film or wherever it's used, um, because it's not an exclusively Western thing either, uh, is to draw no, draw sure. our attention to something specific. But part of the ide- ideology of this film is the need for human connection, right? So everything in this frame is important. Right. That no, yeah, that I yeah, that's kind of where I was yeah. kind of mentally going with this as well. I, I I say Western film just in the sense that like 
you and I are are comfortable. You and I specifically are comfortable with that notion. Right. Right. Like because that's what we grew up seeing. Right. Yeah. Like oh, you're showing this Where thing we in the are foreground. Seeing, we're seeing something different here. Right. Right. And that's what made it, 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 so. That's our context on it. Like yeah. yeah, you see both of these things in film, not just here, but like it is very noticeable. It 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 shocks a little bit, right? Like when you see it, and you're like, "Oh, that thing that's like way far in the foreground is still in focus." Right. Like, it's a weird experience when you're not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Another phenomenal, very very much cranes are flying influence shot is the uh, the entire birch forest sequence with Masha. And uh, I still can't remember his name. Um, <laughs> Don't ask me. I I will never uh, get any of these names right. Colin, I I believe, um, is the is the captain's name. Uh, where they kiss. Um, but but that whole like the the scene right before that's important. Where where Masha has been berated by her boss. Um, for for various inconsistencies and like that it that scene flows over to her walking through the woods because it's still her emotional state and it's in the in the wood sequence where she's very independent right i can do right. this myself i'm not scared uh the only thing that scares me is spiders even though they're in an active war zone and we can hear gunfire in the background right uh and and I can I can do it myself about jumping over the pit and then the shot from below the pit and he grabs her and kisses her and then she's mad, uh, and then he, you know, understandably she was kissed without her consent, uh, and then uh, you know she she sort of wanders off and he calls her back and then as soon as she gets back he says now go away and you know it's. Love in a time of war uh, is still needed <laughs> to keep your humanity too, right? Um, and it's not just it's not just familial relationships; it is it is uh, romantic relationships too. Uh, and uh, that's the thing about that film or that that section is that plot wise, it has very little to do with the rest of the movie. Uh, yes, but ideology wise. <laughs> right well i mean it is it, it is also part of the heart of the movie so right it it is it is just one of those things where like Tarkovsky's done a really fascinating thing we, that i've literally complained about in movies not that long ago right which is like you know exactly how this plot despite literally basically having nothing to do with anything like yeah. the two not being related story-wise basically at all and one of them not appearing in the original book at all right I believe. Right. It, it it feels of a piece with the main storyline because your goal here is very is very easily recognized by the audience, which is human beings are here. This is this is people. People are being people at this place and doing people thing to other people things to other people while there's this fucking nightmare going on. Is a really he does sort of a really fascinating job of conveying those kind of feelings on the audience uh, with with sort of a lot of kind of weird mundanity. 
I don't know if I use that word or said that yes. word correctly. I can't. I can't pronounce that word. That's fine. Um, mundanity doesn't sound right either. They both sound wrong <laughs> uh, to me. Uh, but also, with the sort of, you get that sort of main da- mundane aspects of the world, but also amped up to eleven because it's a war zone too. Yeah. Like the people are interacting differently because it's a war zone, which I don't know. It's it's fascinating because like. How he got the actors and actresses to do that or how they did that is kind of fascinating in and of itself. Like, okay, I need you to do this weird pseudo pursuing love, like love thing, but also remember you're in a war zone, goddammit. I don't know. <laughs> right. It's like, it's, I don't know. Like, that's, there's a vibe, but you feel the vibe. And it's, I don't know how you, I don't know how actors slash a director gets right. that vibe. I also <laughs> That's really hard. I also particularly love that scene for for the fact that the in watching it, the first background noise I become aware of is gunshots. But then toward the end of the scene, the only background noise is a woodpecker. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um I really love just that the nature coming back into focus, right? Uh, right. And and yeah, just just the subtle ways this movie is is trying is to get amazing. beyond war. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it 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 is he really gets does something and conveys something and gets something that is. I don't think it's. I think it is very rare that we've encountered a movie that does this good of a job of. We very rarely encounter movies that are trying to say this exact thing. Right. Uh, and then to get it this. Right, where you're like trying to get beyond war, but the war is still fundamental to everything that's going on. Right. But people are still people. It, it, I don't know. It's kind of magical, like honestly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last things before Ivan's records are discovered and we see, we see that execution sequence is, uh, is that character asking, Will this be the last war on Earth? Yeah, and yeah. that's that's the well, point and, of this movie, right? <laughs> that this right, needs well, that, to be but, the last war on Earth, <laughs> right? But it's also it's legitimately Targaryen already knowing the answer to that question right. because it's nineteen sixty <laughs> right. whatever year <laughs> right, it is. Right, like no, the answer's already no. Right, like on like already no on multiple counts, like which like is an interesting thing, right? Because Targaryen gets to make that point too right because the soldier is asking a legit important question that should have been asked and the answer should be yes but right. we already know that the answer is no right which is sad it's just plain sad right. it's like it's kind of giving the whole world kind of a, a middle finger like it's like is this gonna be the last one and then yeah we all know the answer to that question Um, there, uh, one of my favorite parts of that interview you you talked about already. Uh, I could be thinking of something, one of the other supplementals, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was that one. Uh, was uh, where they're talking about you know, people question how it is that 
Tarkovsky's scripts could be approved, and then he have so oh, much yeah, trouble with yeah. the uh, so much trouble with the censors when when the film's done. And and the guy points out, well, none of the dream sequences are are <laughs> yeah. in the script. Yeah, she. So. Yeah, the 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 person that got interviewed. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah, well, like, I mean, yeah. If you don't follow your script, they got approved. <laughs> right. You can do basically anything. Right. Right. And the dream sequences are all are all great too, uh, particularly the way they build and the way each of them sort of represents what's going on and what what we're trying to say here too right the right. Uh, the the star down the well and and um the end one obviously that that this is this is the childhood Ivan should have had right running down right, the beach yeah. playing with well, other the, children the childhood that every yeah. child should have right, right? like Ivan right. is in that ex- in that circumstance specifically Ivan is a stand in for Right. Every child, right, right, like right. this is what childhood should be, right, and and that sequence in the final shots of the film being the two of them running toward a dead tree, that that is right. that is the future path we put them on, right. Well, um, and then again, yeah. every child, right, yeah. like yeah, we've we've set up every child to just run towards a dead tree, <laughs> right. yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I I. That's one one where Tarkovsky talks about it being imagery from his childhood are the horses and the apples on the beach, um, and horses steaming from from a rainstorm. Uh, but yeah, this the the overabundance in the dreams too, right? That the last one is children having fun, but the one before that, the horses on the beach, is is an overflowing cart of apples, right? right. And that is something that is as foreign during war as uh as happiness in childhood too right but but what needs to be held on to uh yeah it's everything about this movie is so great i love this movie so yeah much. it's it's very i mean it's i was a little apprehensive because again Ru, under rublev was hard yeah like was a hard movie it was a long time ago but my impressions of it are very much that wow that was hard to watch and also <laughs> yeah like a lot of images I still can't put together in my mind. <laughs> right. Right. Uh but images that have stuck with you, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. true. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. I just, you know, I will yeah, I would need to it's one movie I probably should just watch again, yeah. honestly, at some point. If you ever have just the time. Reorient myself uh about it. But like this uh this one is different in the sense that like I have no doubt in my mind like i may forget it because i forget all the movies we watch eventually it feels like there are very few i may not though because like there are certain ones that just nope nope that's mine forever now um sir yeah like i'm i recall to mind something like in the mood for love or something like that but like um but like uh this one's different in the sense that like it, it fits fully within a realm of me being able to comprehend the movie as a whole which I didn't have with Rublev. Again, that may just been experience, right? Like I might I be think able to part watch of its that experience, now and like actually fit it onto my head. But I think Rublev also has so much going on that maybe it is right. impossible it be to hold me. it all. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can yeah. imagine that. So like, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, like uh, this one feels like I've con- 
I, I'm able, it may not be a perfect image, but I'm able to hold a conceptual image of the whole film in my head, which is kind of important to being able to like keep it. Right. And, uh, and I think to a certain extent that for me speaks to the success of Tarkovsky actually in conveying the messages he wants to convey very, very clearly. Right. Right. Unlike a lot of other, I, I think it's harder to watch this movie and not get the message Tarkovsky wants to portray compared to other anti-war films even that we've seen. Right. Well, and that, and and that's an interesting thing, right? Because this is very close to being a successful anti-war film. Yeah, like we talked about how that's fundamentally kind of an impossible ideal. Well, we never see active it, fighting, and the only the only results of fighting we see are people we know dying. Right, right? and and that or the and, and we talked about in the past that like the only way to make an anti-war film is to not actually show war. Right, right. Like, only, only the thing, the horror that the war causes, and never actually. Even then, you get into this weird thing where even then, it's still not. Per, I, th- I do actually think that concept is actually impossible to do. Yeah, a, a purely anti-war film because even with this one, there's still somehow the war is there, and and there's a way to connect to it in a way that you can imagine the soldiers are still doing something noble. Right. And 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 I don't think Tarkovsky wants to give that up, right? Because like because that's p- still part of Soviet identity, right? It's, it's the noble part of Soviet so identity fight. and like and also they are Nazis, right? right. And I, the problem right. with I think part of the problem you run into with anti-war film is that part of it is that so many of them focus on World War 2, which is like the hardest film the hardest war to a certain extent to make that about, right? Yeah. Is the most challenging about that because in, especially in in modern, in, in sort of post-war phenomenon, like it's so easy to imagine the Nazis as just this sort of monolithic bad guy, kind of almost uh, right. kind of like comic book character bad guy sort of thing, right? Uh, and that that's the sort of image, especially especially in the United States, that like Nazis have taken on to the point where you're like, well, yeah, like the it's easy to identify good guy and bad guy in that scenario, right? Right. Um, and we all know that real life is not that simple. That real life is not that black and white, but that's the character of this thing. And uh, right, but this, and so even even in this film, but again, this film tries to muddle it tries that very black hard. and white line too. Absolutely, be- it absolutely, because does. of that documentary footage of absolutely dead German families. Of and Nazi and, and that's what I'm saying. This right. is might be the closest we've ever gotten. Right. Legitimately, like this might be. This might be the closest we've ever gotten. It'll never be perfect. It's like one of those things where like perfect is impossible, but this is very, very, very close. Right. Like point nine 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 repeating kind of scenario. Right. Uh. Which is something, it's interesting to think about that, I think, as well, right? Because, you know, we've talked, this is a thing you and I have talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of my favorite movies we've ever watched. I got it. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, totally. It's up there. Yeah. And it it fits into a very special place because 
they're sort of my favorite movies we've ever watched, and then there's sort of the ones that deal with things like war, yeah, which are part of the favorites, but also kind of have their own special category that like is kind of unique, right? Because yeah, that that topic almost needs to have its own collection separate. Yeah. Uh, I uh, but it's it's an excellent excellent film. Yeah. I think we can end with uh, what Bergman said about this film, and we already talked about the thaw being uh, a an open door for Tarkovsky to get other influence. Bergman puts that into words about Tarkovsky. He says, My discovery of Tarkovsky's first film was like a miracle. Suddenly I found myself standing at the door of a room, the keys of which had, until then, never been given to me. It was a room I had always wanted to enter and where he was moving freely and fully at ease. Uh, this is this is a masterful film, particularly for a first work. As we've already talked about, he will uh, <laughs> he will distill this yeah. into something very different, uh, but still the same. By the time we get to something like Solaris, or in particular Stalker, uh, but but yeah, just it it opens a door for so many people whose work we will respect moving forward uh just and it's yeah it's a phenomenal piece. well yeah i mean the the, the influence on bergman is yeah. like this is seeing this helps me be like oh okay right, right. The, gotcha it's, understood occasionally the criterion collection does something where where i have to wonder why it was that it took so long and why we saw other work from that director before we saw the first work. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't understand, especially when you're dealing with something like this. Yeah. Where I'm like, like, what are the ownership situations of something made by Mossfeld? <laughs> right. That's another thing. You know what I mean? Right? Like, I don't understand how that, I don't understand how their system works. I don't know. Did it take this long in the history of the Criterion Collection to get a hold of, yeah. you know, Ivan's childhood? Like, that's, do you have to? Why? Maybe. Uh, <clears throat> given. Who are you paying? I don't know. Yeah, given Soviet economic structures, uh, theoretically, the every citizen in the Soviet Union owns Ivan's childhood, right? Uh, right, so but we they... also know that the Soviet government started selling shit off. Did they right. sell off Moss film properties at right. some point? We're like. Some rando Italian bought it. In well, like maybe maybe it took 1992 so long. 1992 or something. Maybe it took so long because they had to have every living Soviet sign off on it. <laughs> <laughs> what were you alive in 1960? Whatever. Uh, yes. Okay. Right. You own this film. Please sign this document. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. Well, this week we have been talking about Ivan's childhood. Uh, 1962 debut from Andrei Tarkovsky. I keep calling this his debut. He did do a feature length as his like graduation project. I'm pretty sure too. So technically, he had one under his belt. But this is this is his first work with Mossfeld. Uh, yeah, but I think almost everybody stuff. sort of right. feels. Like it's, I think everybody like because even the um, the person who they did the longer interview, the sort of expert, sort of yeah. described this as a kind of like graduation thesis. Yeah, like ah, like finally really making a film now right right uh but yeah uh we will see currently just one more from tarkovsky uh eventually we will watch stalker uh 
many years when from I'm now. When I'm an old man. When we're all old men, Pat. Where we're old and gray, bent, <laughs> bent back. Uh, but next week, we'll be talking about a uh, collaboration. Uh, it is directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, but based on a short story and a screenplay by Jean Cocteau, who was on set and uh, not very good at being on set, it seems. Uh, <laughs> Les Enfants <laughs> Terribles. Uh, the Terrible yeah. Children uh, from uh, 1950. Uh, so, uh, boy, is it a is it a uh, tonal shift <laughs> in is, a lot of ways. It is very much a tonal shift, uh, but we look forward to talking about that, and we'll see you all next week. Uh, thank you for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oichari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.BandCamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. It's Patreon.com slash LostInCriterion. We'd appreciate it.